Well, good morning, church, and welcome, welcome visitors. It is good to gather with you this morning to worship our, our God who is with us, Emmanuel. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, my name is Kelton. I have the, the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here of Stafford Baptist Church. Thank you for joining us this morning. If, if you are visiting with us, this might be one of the best weeks to visit. I hope to get to know you over our Thanksgiving meal after service. But for now, please, if you would, open your Bibles with me to the 39th chapter of the book of Genesis. Genesis 39, our text this morning, the pure brother and the sovereign God. We're going to read and study the whole chapter as we continue our study of the story of Joseph. You can find that on page 33 of the Bibles provided for you there in the pew. And if you don't own a copy of God's Word, please take that Bible as our gift to you. Again, Genesis 39, you can find that on page 33. Can you imagine what it would be like to be Joseph? In case you're not familiar with his story, let me paint a picture for you. We're only one chapter in. You are sent to go check in on your brothers out with the flocks. And without warning, they attack, strip, and throw you into a pit to die out in the wilderness. You call out to them from the bottom, pitifully pleading for mercy. But they ignore you. When you're finally lifted out of the pit, it's to be sold into slavery, placed in iron fetters and collar. You're now forced to follow brokenhearted behind a caravan of camels headed far from home. The long trek ends with a descent into the Nile Valley where you're you're assaulted by the sights, sounds, and smells of a, a foreign country. The towering architecture of the prosperous kingdom makes you feel so very small and alone in the world. And then, with a simple nod, you're sold off to spend a lifetime serving a man at the epicenter of the aristocracy. What might you be thinking in a moment like that? I imagine that many of us would have been wondering, where are you, God? Have you forgotten me? And to be frank, even if our lives are nothing like Joseph's, sometimes that's a very real question for all of us. Where are you, God? For the Christian, do, do times of uncertainty or injustice we suffer mean that God is not with us? Or can we rather be confident, whatever the circumstances, that God is with us? Our passage this morning gives us an answer. Even in the grip of injustice, the Lord is present with us. We're going to start by praying for God's help in our hearing and the, the proclamation of God's word, and then I will read our passage. So please join with me in praying for God's help. Let's pray.
Our Father, we too wonder often, where are you? Lord, for those who, who believe, Lord, but suffer, we wonder, where are you in our suffering? Have you forgotten us? Father, some of us who, who do not believe, we do not yet know that you are there. We, we can't believe that you are here. So, Father, this morning we pray that you would please be with us. Lord, as we hear your word, that you would help us to focus, to, to hear, to understand and believe that we might see Christ, our God who is Emmanuel, with us. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, please read with me Genesis 39, starting in verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. 
And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge, charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. The word of the Lord. Well, if we are to take this chapter and file it down to the main point for us today, it might be this. Even in the grip of injustice, the Lord is present with us to bless. The main point of the text this morning, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Even in the grip of injustice, the Lord is present with us to bless. Joseph, as his story unfolds, is, is tight in the grip of injustice. Not only has he been kidnapped and sold, but now unjustly accused of sexual assault and imprisoned. But even there, in the pit of prison, the refrain of this passage is that the Lord was with Joseph. Did you notice? Verse 2, right out of the gate, now down in Egypt, the Lord was with Joseph. And it's the bookends of this passage. Verse 21, when now in prison, it says, but the Lord was with Joseph. And that is the same for us, brothers and sisters. No matter what the uncertainty or injustice we suffer, God is with us from beginning to end. Even in the grip of injustice, the Lord is present with us to bless. Our outline has four points this morning. First, in verses 1 through the first half of verse 6, 6a, brought down with blessing. Second, there in the second half of verse 6 through 10, tenacious temptation. Third, in verses 11 through 20, another tragic day. And finally, fourth, in 21 through 23, but still God. So brought down with blessing, tenacious temptation, another tragic day, and in the end, but still God. My, my hope, brothers and sisters, is that God will use this chapter in Joseph's life to point us to Jesus, who also knew God's presence with him and was also gripped by injustice for us, and that we today would have fresh confidence that the Lord has promised his presence with us, whatever we suffer. So let's start jumping back to verse 1, our first point, brought down with blessing. Point 1, brought down with blessing. So the, the first verse of our chapter is nearly exactly as this, the last verse of chapter 37. So we're picking up Joseph's saga exactly where we left him, sold in the Egyptian marketplace to an official in the king's court. So you'll remember last week we studied chapter 38. This is the kind of intervening story of Judah, his sons and his children by Tamar, which covered some 20 years. Judah will, will show up in the story again, a changed man around chapter 42. But now we're jumping back in time to what happened to this young and forgotten brother, Joseph. What happened to him? We have in 39 a contrast to Judah. Judah in chapter 38, verse 1, went down from his brothers by his own choice. Do you recall that? Well, here in chapter 39, verse 1, Joseph 2 is, is going down, but he is brought down against his will. 
He's bought there in Egypt, it says in verse 1, by Potiphar, a captain of the guard. He would command the, the king's imperial guard, and he's responsible for the, the prison as well. So Joseph is now in a, a foreign land, far from home, one of the world's greatest superpowers under the thumb of one of the world's most powerful men. If I had to guess, that would seem like the headline of Joseph's life, right? If someone asked him for an update, what's going on in your life, that might be it. But in fact, neither the location nor his human master is the defining feature of this narrative of his life. No, it is verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. That is really what these first six verses are, are consumed with telling us about, that, that God is with him. Joseph might feel small and alone, but the God of all creation is with him. The proof is there in his success, particularly there in verse 3. Because the Lord was with him, he became successful. So successful, in fact, that he was promoted from field to house. Verse 3, it is evident even to the Egyptian that something about Joseph was unique. Whatever he touched, it succeeded. Joseph is something like Potiphar's own personal King Midas, right? Who is blessed by the Greek gods with the power to turn whatever he touched into gold. So Joseph's hands here were turning everything he got to gold, bringing prosperity, whatever he was responsible for. So in verse 4, he has continued to be promoted to Potiphar's personal attendant even overseer of the entire house. If his touch turns it to gold, let's put everything in his hands. But to be clear, this is not the gift of a Greek god, nor the Egyptian sun god, Ra. Now, verse 5 makes it clear that the reason the Egyptian's house is being blessed is because of the Lord. The Lord was blessing the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake, it says. And this blessing is on all, in house and in field, according to the end of verse 5. Potiphar was only worried about what to eat, in verse 6. Maybe particularly because the Egyptians found it an abomination to eat with Hebrews. Of course, what we have here in the first six verses is, is ultimately not about the success of Joseph. Rather, it is a story of God's faithfulness to his promises. Whether or not Joseph was particularly skilled isn't the point. Whether or not through his natural talents, all of it ultimately comes from God. This is evidence of God's faithfulness to his promises. In fact, all of biblical history is the outworking of God's faithfulness to his promises. You might recall in the era of the Bible that we're studying this morning, the orienting promise is known as the Abrahamic covenant. What God promised generations before to Abraham. It's, it's the promise that's really been in the, the driver's seat of, of the unfolding of history ever since. Do you remember God promised to Abraham that he and his descendants would be a blessing? Genesis 12, 2 and 3 the Abrahamic promise says this, I will bless you, God says, and make your name great so that 
Why is God blessing Abraham? So that you will be a blessing. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You might remember as we studied Genesis how God was faithful to the bless the nations through Abraham and his line. Like when, for example, Abraham's grandson Jacob worked for Laban. What happened? Laban had little when Jacob started working for him, but under Jacob his flocks increased abundantly. Sounds a lot like what's happening to Joseph here. Jacob was able to say to Laban, the Lord blessed you wherever I turned. Again, the blessing comes from God because of his promise. So what we have here in Genesis 39 is another initial and partial fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. You know, in, in this story, Joseph himself doesn't benefit personally from this kind of arrangement, right? The benefit is going to the Egyptian. Joseph has to work. The Egyptian enjoys rest and leisure, becoming rich and comfortable. But the point is not about who benefits. It is evidence of God's presence with Joseph. Faithfulness to the promise that all families of the earth will be blessed through this line, the line of Abraham. Now, even here, even in slavery, God has not abandoned Joseph or his promise. It is evident to all, even in his slavery, that God is with Jacob to bless. Of course, this is, again, only an initial and partial fulfillment of that promise. We will see it later, even in this book, when Joseph brings blessing not just to one household, but to all of Egypt and all the surrounding nations, saving them from a widespread famine. Even later in the Bible, we see it when the nation of Israel is called to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. God gives them, the nation, his law so that they might manifest his holiness to the nations, be a blessing to the nations. We can keep going beyond that. We see it when King Solomon receives wisdom and wealth from God. He is blessed by God so that 1 Kings 10 says the whole earth sought the presence of King Solomon to hear his wisdom. We go on and on. This has always been God's plan for all nations to receive blessing through his promised seed. And of course, saints, it reaches its climax in the incarnation of the Son of God. This descendant of Abraham is the one promised in whom all families of the earth will be blessed. In the new and final covenant that Jesus brings, all peoples of all nations are invited to receive spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Not just on home and field, but the blessings of eternal life and, and righteousness. Not because of good works done by us, but simply by faith as a gift from Him. And this, of course, God accomplished when Jesus, like Joseph, left his home, took on the garb of a servant, God's presence with him from beginning to end. Jesus went about healing and, and imparting the wisdom of God, not living for his own benefit, but for the glory of God and the good of others. Jesus, too, was brought down with blessing. And just like Joseph, Jesus, too, endured tenacious temptation but remained faithful. Our second point this morning, starting in the second half of verse 6, 
tenacious temptation. Tenacious temptation. The second half of verse 6 there gives us a little biographical help. It helps us understand about the the scene that's going to happen next. Joseph, it says, is handsome in form and appearance. His physique and features were attractive. And so, in verse 7, Potiphar's wife takes notice of him and invites him to bed. Lie with me, she says. Keep in mind, Joseph was 17 when he was kidnapped. He's at most only a few years older. And we all know that being young is hard and confusing as it is. We might expect a teenage boy with hormones abuzz to find this offer alluring. And not only that, the justification is easy. No one would ever know, certainly not his family. Plus, this could enhance his career. Or at least he didn't dare displease her. And wasn't he entitled to some caring affection after all he's been through? But what does Joseph do? Verse 8, but he refused. And he has good reason. Despite all the reasons he could, he has greater reasons why he cannot. Her three-word proposal in verse 7 is met by a 62-word reasonable response from Joseph. To summarize, first, it would break the trust given to him In verse 8, his master has put everything in his charge because he trusts him. Second, it would break the covenant of marriage in verse 9. She, he says, is his master's wife, kept back from him. But third, and most importantly, at the end of verse 9, it would be sin against God. How then could I do this great wickedness and sin not against you? Not against my master, but sin against God. I think this is amazing. This isn't a prepared speech. He's ready at the moment of temptation. Christians, we know that it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. In other words, what we love and are constantly considering is what we will say when the moment of temptation comes. Like for Joseph here. What we read earlier from 1 Peter reminds us that it's when we are mindful of God that we can endure injustice. Joseph's remarkable ability here to to fight temptation is because he had a remarkably clear understanding of God. In fact, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian... Or if you just find the the Christian view of sex or sin in general to be outdated, Joseph here gives us a a great example why Christians hold to this view and and why I think you should too. To be frank, the the three reasons that Joseph gives here are, are not very popular. They don't carry much weight in our culture today. I am told that there are whole dating websites for married people to find mistresses. That's the world we live in. The deciding factor for Joseph is not what is popular, not what is traditional, and not even what is to his advantage. The deciding factor 
And what he believes is what is actually true about God, that God is better than anything else in the world. The truth is, whatever sin you or I struggle with, whether it is lust, pride, gossip, or anger, its power comes from your desires. That you want something more than you want God, and that sin is offering you a way to get it. Sins hold no power if what they offer is not something you want. If Joseph, for example, had valued in this moment safety, comfort, position in the house more than he loved God, he would have given in to the offer without a second thought. But Joseph had a remarkably clear and true understanding of God. He is here a very clear example of faith in God and therefore enduring faithfulness to God. Or put another way, true faith in God creates true love for God and a heart that wants to please God more than even to experience pleasure or avoid pain. Again, true faith in God creates a true love for God and a heart that wants to please God more than even to experience pleasure or avoid pain. You know, that's the, the true cause when we sin, saints. Our own hearts draw us into sin because it wants something more than it wants God. This morning, I could give you five tips to fight tenacious temptation from this text, but I have one. You must have more than just good reasons not to sin, because frankly, in the moment, not many of us think rationally about temptation. When we sin, we're being irrational. No, resisting temptation requires a change in our hearts, which is, of course, something that we cannot do for ourselves. We cannot simply decide to turn over a new leaf and stop sinning. We need to be given a new heart, a heart that sees and loves God. And we don't get that heart by first fighting temptation and earning a new heart. No, no, no. That power comes later after we receive hope. Our hope is in something far more fixed than anything that we can do. There is, is only one who remained completely loyal to God, no matter the temptation. And it wasn't Joseph, and it won't be you or I. Joseph points us to the, the greater one to come. And it is Hebrews that tells us Jesus is the one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record Jesus being led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus there was, was offered the pleasures of this world. Satan offered him power without the cross. Jesus resisted tenacious temptation with reasonable answers, all rooted in a remarkably clear and true understanding of God. Friends, everything you were made for, everything that is truly good and beautiful is found in God. Yes, we were all made for pleasure and beauty. 
But that is because we were made by God and for God. Sin is just a, a cheap knockoff. It might look good, but it's just imitating the genuine source, God himself. So the center of fighting tenacious temptation is to be satisfied in something even greater than what sin can offer. It is to be pleased and therefore to please God. That is how here in verse 10, Joseph is able to resist tenacious temptation. Potiphar's wife continues to make this offer to Joseph. It says day after day. But his heart is continually set on a better offer. And we know this because he remains faithful. His faith in God produces faithfulness even when it costs him nearly everything except his life. Our third point in verses 11 through 20, another tragic day. His faithfulness will cost him nearly everything on another tragic day. You know, at this point, Joseph has had a number of tragic days. The day he was attacked, left for dead, and sold to slavers by his brother. The day he was brought, bought in the Egyptian market. And here, another tragic day. Verse 11 begins, but one day. And on this day, something is different. Opportunity strikes. None of the normal house servants were there. So when Potiphar's wife speaks to the same words to Joseph, lie with me there in verse 12, she grabs him. She doesn't have the same need for subtlety this time. Joseph in verse 12 leaves his outer garment behind because her grip is so tight. He either slips out of it or it rips as he runs. If you were looking for a practical tip on fighting temptation, here it is. Get away. Run. Paul will later tell the, the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee from sexual immorality. Don't just walk away casually when it's convenient. Flee immediately. Remember, Joseph in verse 10, uh, sorry, verse 9, called this sin wickedness. If you have grace to see sin as wickedness, you won't toe the line and get as close as you can without falling in. We can imagine if Joseph had, after getting free of her grip, you know, so just out of arm's reach, he stayed trying to duck and dodge for, for a few minutes. Now, obviously, he would have been inviting more temptation. He should, and he did, get out of the house. So, saints, I repeat, the center of fighting tenacious temptation is to be satisfied in something that is even greater than sin. But when we can, we should even avoid the fight in the first place. Flee. What I mean, when you're, for example, tempted to anger, intentionally direct your thoughts. Flee in your mind elsewhere. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. If it's someone tempting you to anger, take a break. Take some breaths. Or if you're tempted to believe the lies our word, world tells us every day about what a good body is, do not be conformed to this world. It might be appropriate for you to flee by deleting Instagram or canceling your subscription to that magazine. 
If you're tempted to view illicit images, maybe it would be best for you to restrict your internet access. Your desires, your passions wage war against your soul. There are wonderful blocking and filtering tools I'd, I'd love to recommend. Jesus says it is better to lose an eye or hand, metaphorically, than our whole bodies be thrown into hell. There is nothing that we might give up in order to fight sin that is worth more than pleasing Christ and finding our deepest pleasure in Him. Philippians 3.8, Paul testifies to us, brothers and sisters, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Everything as loss for something far more valuable. Joseph is proof of this. His choice to flee here rather than flirt costs him nearly everything. He'd rather give it all up so that he might know Christ Jesus his Lord. The woman in this narrative keeps his garment and prepares her vengeance. In verse 14, she calls the men back in and fabricates her lie. That term, laugh at us, has the, has the idea of mocking us or, or making sport of us. Her tale is the exact opposite of what happened. She didn't cry out because he came to her, but she took him and cried out when he left. But now she has witnesses she then waits for her husband to return with the garment still in place right next to her so that he can imagine it for himself. In verse 17, she tells the same lie to her husband. The transgression is multiplied because not only is Joseph a Hebrew, but he is a mere servant. The woman there even seems to place blame at her husband's feet, whom you have brought among us. And of course, the lie works. Potiphar's anger is kindled. Obviously, if her tale were true, it would be righteous. It would be right of him to be angered by it. But this is just comment that our anger is so often kindled by falsehood. It's helpful to remember that God's anger is always fueled by perfect knowledge. His anger is always proportional and just. His anger, along with all that he does, is always good. But without trial, Joseph is thrown into the pit of prison. He is placed in the prison where the king's prisoners are kept. At this point, since we know it's a false accusation, I'm hoping for something like the plot of, of the fugitive. You know, something, some kind of action movie sequence where Joseph, like Harrison Ford, framed for a crime he didn't commit, escapes from captivity, you know, heroically proves his innocence and exposes the real criminal. But that's not what happens. It's just another tragic day. Evil seems to win again. Another injustice with no Redress. So we return to where we began. What must Joseph now have been thinking? Where are you, God? Have you forgotten me still? 
Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And how about right now? And after all I've done for you, I could have avoided all this. This is all your fault. Am I obeying you for nothing? And I get prison in return. To be frank, what Joseph experienced here is not new suffering. It's the same old suffering that continues on long after we think it should be over. Maybe you can relate. No relief from suffering with no end in sight. The phone call never comes. The cure doesn't work. The person doesn't change. Why doesn't God do something? And so again, we return to where we began. God is not absent. He is patiently working all things according to the counsel of his will. Our fourth and final verse, our point in verses 21 through 23, but still God, but still God. Where was God? What was he doing? Well, he was right there, and he was, in fact, showing steadfast love to Joseph. Let me reread verse 21 in full. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. You know, those few words at the start of verse 21 are some of the sweetest words to find in Scripture. But the Lord. Evil may have won the battle, but God will win the war. Or in fact, I think to put it more strongly and more accurately, evil may have won the battle, but God means that evil to accomplish his victory. This is in fact his love. He is working out his good plan for Joseph to bring about salvation through him. Can you believe that, Christian? That even in suffering, God loves you. That he is steadfast in love, it says. It does not waver or wane. The Lord is still with him. Again, here in prison, it shows up in, in favor and in success. Just like in Potiphar's house, everything he touches in prison is blessed. He's put in charge of everything once again. His location may have changed, but God still is present with him to bless. And as if Moses wasn't clear enough, he repeats it again in verse 23, because the Lord was with him. The Lord made it succeed. Whatever Joseph's talents or wisdoms, it comes from God. And here at the end of 39, Joseph again is right where he needs to be. As one author put it, the further Joseph descends in social rank, the closer he moves to the royal court. Remember, he is a prisoner where the king's prisoners are kept. God in his providence, guiding all history, is placing Joseph, even through injustice and suffering, right where he needs to be. He is at his lowest, but he is poised right next to the great heights of the throne. It's something like the, the slow descent of the arm of a catapult, down, 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 waiting until, snap, it shoots its cargo to its intended target. 
So here the arm is set in place, waiting for his meteoric rise to the king's right hand. But that has to wait. Just to be clear, church, most of us are suffering. I tried to even count. Maybe a dozen of us are in some kind of suffering right now. Sickness, surgeries, stress, family in the hospital, failed hopes, loss. But some of us do think things are generally going pretty well. For you today, this text calls you to give credit where credit is due. Again, verse 23, whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. The credit for all success goes to him. Even the strength to work hard for success comes from him. All things are for him, so all thanks goes to him. So especially this week of Thanksgiving, can you make it known that your thanks goes to God with those you celebrate this week. And for all of us, brothers and sisters, for those who suffer now or for when suffering does come, we can remain loyal to God because he will never withdraw his blessing of his presence from us. Moses, who is writing this account, means for it to encourage Israel that God is with them in their suffering. God's love does not mean the absence of suffering, but rather his presence in suffering and his purpose through suffering. And just as Israel could trust, we today have even greater reason. Our proof is not just Joseph, but Jesus himself. The, the life of Joseph that we study here is like, like a shadow of the true shape to come, seen in Jesus. Jesus willingly left his exalted position to enter into the, the bondage and suffering of this world all to serve and bless humanity. We know that God was with him too from beginning to end. Luke 2.40 says when he was young, the favor of God was upon him. At his baptism, the spirit descended on him. Jesus taught him in John 8, 29, He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So in, in all things, Jesus resisted temptation, always doing the things that are pleasing to the Father. Whatever he touched was healed and restored. He made the blind to see the deaf to hear, and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God's saving reign. And he too was gripped by injustice and falsely accused and suffered in silence. He, in fact, did have the power, calling on 12 legions of angels to make a heroic escape and prove his innocence. But instead of bypassing the cross, he humbly submitted to God's plan. He went down to the pit, not of a prison, but of a grave. And where was God on that day when Jesus suffered on the cross? When we sinful humanity meant his death for evil? Well, God was there, working all things according to the counsel of his will. The Father allowed the Son to be falsely accused and condemned 
sinfully abused and murdered. And in truth, on that tragic day, the father forsook the son, pouring out his righteous anger against sin onto Jesus. On the cross, Jesus experienced the punishment that we deserve as forsaken by God, suffering for all the sins of those who would ever trust in him. He did that. He was forsaken so that we never have to be. Because of, of his death for us, he can now promise us, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He will never forsake us, never leave us. And in him, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, the blessings of eternal life and righteousness by faith in him. When we are cleansed of sin's guilt by God's spirit, he makes his home with us. Christ, by his spirit, is always with us and gives us the power to fight tenacious temptation. Joseph's suffering here in, in chapter 39 was a precursor to glory, real glory. But it was only preparing him to be next to the greatest power in the world. No, our suffering preparing, is preparing us for much, much more than that. 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this light momentary affliction, Paul says, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The glory of the halls of the greatest dynasty on earth is not worth comparing to the glory that awaits us. It is preparing us to rise and join the king at his right hand in heaven forever. When we are lifted from the pit of suffering into the palace of his perfect presence, we will know him forever. Either when we die or the Lord returns. So saints, even when he might seem hidden, distant, trust that he is still showing steadfast love. A little fact for you, after verse 23, the personal name of God, Yahweh, won't show up in Genesis again until chapter 29, or sorry, 49. But even if his name is absent, this is the note that we have to sustain through all of Joseph's song. The Lord was with him. The Lord was showing steadfast love. So even in the darkest hours of our lives, another year of lingering suffering, God has not abandoned us. God poured out all of his righteous anger against our sin on Jesus. So now all of our suffering can only work for us glory. Suffering, then glory for Christ and for all who follow him. Brothers and sisters, we can remain loyal to God even in the midst of injustice because God's grip is tighter still. He will hold us fast. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do praise you for the assurance we have through Christ that you are with us always even to the end of the age. Father, even when this world grips us in injustice, even when we suffer year after year longing to be delivered, we know that you are with us and that your promise 
will be fulfilled. You are faithful. Lord, not only to be with us, but to work in our suffering glory. Lord, we do pray that you would set our hopes today on your presence with us, and in that day, the glory that will be ours with you, glorified in your perfect palace, in your presence forever. Give us this hope today, we pray, in the name of Christ. Amen.